Hey, Stephen Smith here. We are renaming the American Radio Works podcast. We think the new name is better and more direct. It's going to be called Educate, a podcast from APM Reports. As always, we'll go in-depth on new ideas and research on how we learn and how we teach. So, same quality reporting, same subject matter, but a new name. Okay, here's this week's episode. From APM, this is Educate, a podcast from APM Reports on ideas and research on how we teach and learn. I'm Stephen Smith. In the United States, nearly 3 million kids are suspended from school every year. The problem is recent research suggests that suspension doesn't actually work. It doesn't make students behave better when they come back to school. A student who is suspended in the ninth grade is twice as likely to drop out of school, and kids who get suspended are also more likely to get in trouble with the law. Kids of color are more likely to be suspended than white kids. So many districts around the country are looking to alternatives. Well, school districts are now recognizing this as a problem, and they're moving toward a system called restorative justice. This is a news clip about schools in Sacramento turning to a program called Restorative Justice. It focuses on early intervention and building relationships between teachers and students. But what exactly is restorative justice? To answer that question, we turn to Talia Gonzalez, a professor of politics at Occidental College. She's done research all over the country on restorative justice. Gonzalez joined contributing producer Catherine Winter for this podcast. So restorative justice is... What does it mean to think about how you interact with your friends or your family in daily life or even your colleagues um, at work? And so viewing it through that lens, it's thinking about both a philosophy in wanting to have positive relationships, being connected with people, solve problems, create space for respect and dignity, but also at the same time then allowing a way that you can resolve those conflicts in a, in a more socialized, in a more thoughtful and deliberate way. In schools, it's about shifting away from punishment. It's about shifting away from exclusion. It's what is it to feel respected? What is it to feel understood? What is it to be able to engage in thoughtful dialogue with another person? Instead of removing a kid from a classroom, for example, or removing them from the school entirely, how do we ensure that they're integrated into that space? And there's a lot of focus that's been on students, and rightfully so, but I also think it's important to think about what's the impact on the teachers, right? What's impact on staff and administrators? So if you're a teacher, right, what is it for you to be able to think about how you have different attitudes, what your tolerance levels are, right, and all the things that go into your teaching and your teaching time in the classroom, but also just your experience as a human being interacting with other people. So I understand what you're saying about it being sort of a philosophy and an approach more than something you can sort of take out of a box and say, do this, right? But I also think that it'll be easier for people to understand if we give them some concrete examples of how restorative justice might play out in a school setting. Sure. If you think about it as a philosophy... What is it to bring people together in the aftermath of something? So coming to a more salient example of something that happened and then addressing that harm, making amends and restoring to the extent possible the trust that was broken. So imagine that you're in a classroom and a student has an interaction with another student where out of that it's, it's necessitating those students 
be removed from that space and sit down and have a different level of conversation, sitting down and having a conference. So you, you would have those two students begin with individual conferencing and talk about what happened, right? Asking those basic questions, you know, as to what started this, what happened, how did you feel, right? Have you been harmed? What would it mean to you to have resolution? And then bringing those two students together um, for a facilitated conference where there's ground rules laid out at the beginning in terms of, you know, basic things like not interrupting, right, listening to the other person, being open um, to what the person is saying. And then ultimately, the aim is to reach a resolution at the end. And so you can imagine that just between two people. But then what is that if it's in a bigger setting? And that's where people talk about circles, for example. So sitting in circle with a larger group of individuals who have both experienced harm, but also perhaps were the ones who were sort of seen as the ones who were creating that harm and doing that, that same process. Starting off your class as a teacher, sitting with all the students and just checking in. What does that mean? What would you, what would you check in about? What would you be asking about? How they're feeling, how they're doing. This is variant depending on the school that you're at, the classroom that you're at, right? It's not, quote, one size fits all. So the conversation you have with a kindergartner or a first grader or a second grader or a third grader or even a fourth grader is dramatically different than what you might have with a 12th grader. I, I just have to ask because I'm picturing having this happen in my third or fourth or fifth grade class when I was in third or fourth or fifth grade. And, and, and in fact, I recall that they tried to do some things where they sat us down and had us talk about our feelings. But every kid there knew that if you let slip a single word about any place in which you were vulnerable, that the rest of the kids were going to make life hell for you about that later. And and there's there's no way in a circle in fourth grade I would have told anyone how I felt about anything because it was too dangerous. That's where the role of the teacher becomes really critical. Um, and that's why there's been so much emphasis over the last three to five years on training for them, right? They're seen as the one who's also modeling what is that type of behavior. So in that instance, the modeling behavior would be a teacher talking with a sense of vulnerability about something in that circle as well. And it doesn't happen overnight, right? I mean, it's not as if on the first day of class, everyone <laughs> walks in and says, oh, my God, this is how I'm feeling. And, you know, so let's all just get it on the table. Because, again, school is also about a primary experience of learning in the context of socialization, but in a primary experience of learning and whatever the focus of that classroom is, right? But it starts with the individual. It starts with the teacher. And setting that as the beginning from the first day of class. So it seems like restorative justice is getting a lot of ink these days and that a lot of school districts are looking into trying to implement some kind of restorative practices. Do you have a sense at all of how, how popular is it? So I did a, a survey with my students informally in April of this year, and uh, we found 27 states in which schools had either implemented restorative justice or were planning to implement restorative justice. When you say 27 states, do you mean that there are 27 states where there's been action taken at the state level? Or do you mean that there's at least one school in each of those 27 states? There's, there's only been 
really one state that has looked at doing this, and that's Texas. When I use that 27 states, I'm speaking specifically to there is at least one school, if not more than one school, or one district in that state where the expansion and the implementation is occurring. So how do you account for its explosive growth? What do you think is is causing people to to be attracted to this philosophy or this this set of practices? Well, I think it's a couple things. You know, first, there's a, a pretty strong consensus about the flaws and failures of zero tolerance and exclusionary discipline. Obviously, one of the most common examples is um, the entry into the school-to-prison pipeline or more bluntly put, entry into the juvenile and criminal justice systems. So it's more likely if you have been suspended or expelled, in particular, if you happen to be a student who is African-American or Latino um, or Native American in this country, that you're going to enter into those systems, right? And so I think that that's a really sort of clear piece of data um, that people have been able to wrap their heads around. I think coupled with that was the emergence of looking at this discipline gap. So what is it to think about disproportionality in discipline? So discipline is being applied to a certain set of students and not another set of students. And again, it's tracking along racial lines, it's tracking along lines of gender, and it's also tracking along lines in terms of how people identify within their sexual orientation and status in that way. Tell me what leads you to believe that restorative justice, you, you sound like a fan, right? <laughs> what, what is the research that leads you to believe that it's effective? Since sort of those early entrepreneurs of restorative justice, beginning in the mid-2000s, there have been really significant outcomes, right? And so when someone looks at restorative justice, or more importantly, a restorative school, meaning a school that is employing or implementing restorative justice, and you see that there's reductions in suspensions, you see that there's reductions in expulsions, you see that there's improvements in school climate, you're able to look at tardies and absenteeism being impacted positively, and also educational achievement. I mean, what is it to know that in Oakland back in 2014, you could say graduation rates in restorative schools had increased by 60% over three years for African-American students. That's incredible, right? That's a significant outcome that people want to look at. Same thing that when you look at ninth grade reading levels, you have a doubling in restorative justice schools going from 14% to 33% in those schools in Oakland. That's an established site of restorative justice at a district-wide level. You know, I think then we can start to see those types of reductions in absolute terms. There's two things that come out. One, we know that kids are getting more time in the classroom, right? That's huge for educational outcomes. But there was also, for example, you know, absenteeism dropped, right? So in Oakland, you know, they found that absenteeism had dropped by 24% for schools that had restorative justice, but actually rose 62% for schools that were non-restorative justice. How do we know that the suspensions dropped because of the restorative justice and not because of something else that was happening at the same time? Right. Um, And I think that's a really important question. I can say with respect to Denver, and I think safely say with respect to Oakland, um, because I've spent a fair amount of time with the folks there, it's not just that suspensions aren't happening, is that there's clear tracking within 
the school that restorative justice is being done instead of suspension. And there's data with students sampled in Denver Public Schools. The one I'm talking about specifically was in 2009 when students were sampled. There was that 30% increase in school attendance and timeliness. It was also then doing an interview. Why? (laughs) Right? Asking the why were you in class? And the students themselves were attributing that to the fact that it was it was restorative justice. So they used language like, our school is restorative. It's really easy to know, well, what are the numbers? But then to step back and think about this in terms of a qualitative assessment, you know, if you're talking from a research standpoint, or if you're just talking from a, a general person-to-person standpoint, the power of hearing someone's story, the power of understanding that a person realized that they harmed another individual, even though at the moment that that was all happening, they didn't realize that, that's transformational. Talia Gonzalez is a professor of politics at Occidental College. She spoke with producer Catherine Winter. You can find a link to her work at apmreports.org. And also stay tuned for our full-length documentary coming up, Spare the Rod, Reforming School Discipline. That launches on August 25th. We'd love to hear what you think about Educate. You can leave us a review on iTunes or let us know at apmreports.org. We're on Facebook, and you can also tweet us at Educate Podcast. Support for APM Reports comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Lumina Foundation, and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith, and thanks for listening. This is APM. APM.